What I would uh, like to do tonight is give a talk that in some ways uh, could just stand alone, uh, talking about non-clinging. Uh, but in other ways, and this is my main purpose, really, um, hopefully give give something in a way that serves or uh, gives a, 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 kind, a kind of preface, if you like, uh, to the set of talks that, that, that um, we're going to start <coughs> around uh, the alchemy of desire, around eros and practice. Um, so a kind of preface, but a slightly strange preface, but one that um, serves to give um, a context, or at least part of a context for um, what many would probably consider uh, relatively unusual teachings um, in, in the rest of the set. So I want to give part of a context tonight, and as well as context, um, begin also to contrast um, different, if you like, uh, understandings or visions or conceptual frameworks that we can have of Dharma and of this teaching of clinging and non-clinging um, in the Dharma. And that's, if you like, the main point, to begin to contrast something. Because uh, we can take away from listening to teachings or reading teachings um, or even be given through teachings um, an understanding or a conceptual framework of what the Dharma is that, that shapes our practice and shapes our whole sense of what the Dharma is and what the project is and what awakening is and what we're moving towards and what's involved. Um, an understanding, conceptual framework that is certainly helpful uh, to, to, to a degree for many people and certainly freeing to a certain extent again for many people but that also shuts doors this, this is the contrast I, I want to make between different understandings different conceptual frameworks um, one of which if you like or a group of which I would say um, helpful as it is, freeing as it is to a certain extent, also ends up shutting doors. Uh, doors that, if you like, open to a much wider and much more radical uh, freedom and beauty and uh, openness of being and of the sense of existence. So part of the context begin to contrast some different um, large-scale understandings uh, and and where they might lead or, or, or what they might block off. Actually, um, I've I think I've pretty much talked about all of this before and certainly written about uh, much of it. Um, and I don't particularly like to repeat myself. I don't see the point if it's already out there, generally. Um, would rather move on to new stuff. But um, So a lot of this will be quite brief. It's also um, 
not all of this, but um, much of it is um, w widely available. That there's probably not a, a Dharma teacher alive, and certainly not an insight meditation uh, teacher who doesn't talk about clinging in in certainly at the the one of the levels that I want to talk about. So some of it will be moving through territory quite briefly because because of those uh, for those reasons. Um, but I do want to draw out a couple of things, a couple of main points that uh, I've maybe only mentioned before here and there, um, important as they are, again, for the sake of context and for the sake of contrast. <coughs> so when we look in the Pali Canon, the uh, collected teachings of the, the, um, the early teaching, the teachings of the Buddha, historical Buddha, we find a lot of different words, like English, um, a lot of different words, uh, like English we have passion, desire, craving, greed, um, clinging, grasping, you, you know, many many words, English is a very rich language, um, and similarly in, in Pali, in the, in the language of the Buddha, we have a word like raga. Uh, which actually is is uh, meaning to color or to dye uh, the coloring, like especially rouge. It's related to, to the word red to to make rouge, um, but it really means passion, excitement. This uh, later on, we'll, you know, we'll emphasize this: that passion uh, colors something. When when we color things red, we become impassioned or passion also colors things. So there's a link there. But there's this word raga, uh, usually translated as passion or lust. Uh, karma, K-A-M-A, -A, uh, can have two meanings. One is the object of sensual enjoyment. Uh, the object, uh, so something uh, that is um, uh, sensually pleasing, but also sense desire. The verb kamati means to desire or to crave. There's the word loba, L-O-B-H-A, which uh, can be translated as greed. Uh, um, geda, also translated as greed. Um, there's a word chanda, <coughs> which is an interesting word, because sometimes uh, you can talk about chanda, uh, for example, in Pali called hitta chanda, as the effort to do good. Um, or hitta is what's useful or suitable or beneficial or friendly. So when we talk, for example, in metta practice about well-wishing um, or, or, or doing uh, good in the world, is, is hitta chanda. Uh, this it, chanda is really impulse or intention or will. It could be virtuous or it could be a virtue or a vice. Uh, the motivation to accomplish, it means all, all that. It can also mean excitement. And related to impulse there. So sometimes people want to uh, make a distinction. Chanda is positive uh, because it's good, uh, good uh, intention, uh, or it can be good. And um, words like raga, karma, loba, etc., uh, these are negative words. They lead to suffering, they are unskillful, etc. However, um, there are also plenty of instances in Pali Canon where, uh, for instance, Sariputta in the Samyutta Nikaya says, uh, Chandaraga, desire and lust, these are fetters. Okay, so Chanda there is not qualified, it's just saying it's a fetter. There's words like Tanha, uh, which usually translates craving, and Upadana, uh, clinging, usually translated or attachment. 
uh, <coughs> this is quite an interesting word because it also um, means literally <coughs> a fuel or um, that which supports something. So it can be grasping, hold on, clinging as something that supports. And what does it support? It supports suffering. But as we go deeper, we'll see that it supports a whole lot more than that. Supports the sense of self, supports the very sense of reality, supports perception too, supports any experience. It's fuel for experience. And this is taking the whole thing to another level. We'll come back to this. But there are all these words in, in Pali and in the Pali canon, one way or another, um, the Buddha says, um, the path leads to the end of, and he uses any of these words, any of them. Uh, so in a way, they're kind of used interchangeably. Uh, there's, we can um, certainly make distinctions um, and try and carve out distinctions there, but generally... Um, although there are distinctions, generally they're, they're pretty much interchangeable. And the Buddha uh, and the teachings say they are all fetters. Kama, Tanha, uh, Geda, Raga, Loba, passion, lust, craving, desire, etc., etc., um, clinging, all fetters, Samyojanani, Samyojanani. Uh, which means fetter, something like yoke, like the uh, what an oxen or a bullock that's ploughing a field has a yoke to pull that on. Something that imprisons. So, and the Buddha talks about different fetters, and in the process, in in the stages of enlightenment, how different fetters are eradicated is really the the word that he uses. So, <coughs> karma chando, sensual desire. Um, is eradicated at the third stage of awakening. Um, and at full <coughs> awakening, full enlightenment, arahantship, the raga, uh, rupa raga, the de- passion or the lust for material existence, for material birth, for forms, um, if, you, if you prefer more experientially, getting away from the whole teaching of rebirth and all that. The passion, the lust for, for material forms. Um, and aruparago, uh, the passion, the lust for immaterial uh, realms uh, or immaterial jhanas, or if you do the whole rebirth thing, rebirth in a formless realm. And also eradicated at arahantship is utacha, which is an interesting word, restlessness, agitation, excitement, flurry, imbalance, uh, sh- shakiness. Um, in the sense of being shaken by experience. It's the opposite of being subdued. It's also related to the word lifting up, udhata, to to lift up, to, to, um, to rise high, to be risen. So that too, being able to be lifted up, being able to be excited, out of balance, in a flurry, not being subdued. What's the opposite of subdued in English? That's restlessness. Sometimes usually translated or toucha. That's also eradicated. And as I say, we could, 
make uh, distinctions here. And so one of the distinctions that's quite common to make these days is between um, craving, tanha, and clinging, upadana. <coughs> and um, so that craving is the momentary impulse to have something or to get away from something. So it can work both ways. Uh, um, as an aversion, aversive movement, to, to move away from something we don't like, what's unpleasant, or to, or to move towards, I want that thing, I want to get it, I want to have it. This is craving, that, that kind of movement of the mind, uh, that desire. And then, um, if we distinguish them, then clinging, upadana, is, is when that becomes more uh, obsessive, if you like, or more entrenched. Um, so we start circling around that thing, thinking about it a lot, um, scheming in ways to get it, etc. Uh, there's a consolidation, a tightening, a reinforcing, a solidification that's happening. So can be helpful to distinguish them. Certainly can be helpful at a certain level. But, but distinguishing and differentiating them uh, won't actually solve the issues that I want to address uh, and draw attention to tonight. It can be helpful, but those doors that I, uh, that I alluded to earlier that uh, can actually be shut by thinking about practice in a certain way, thinking about practice and dharma in a certain way, conceiving it in a certain way, they will remain shut even if I make certain differentiations here among those Pali words. Historically, by the way, I don't know if there's that much. Um, if you really study the text, you see how much overlap there really is between all these words. And hi- historically, you know, the 12 links of dependent origination, so Tantha and Upadana are two links in, in those 12 links of dependent origination, of the wheel of suffering, as some people call it. Um, those 12 links, and in fact the wheel, were actually, uh, there's good evidence, that they were taken from a Vedic creation hymn, uh, myth, that it pre-existed the Buddha by, by a long time. It would have been, the, that would have been a concept, that whole 12 links, um, that was already quite uh, well known in, in the society. The Buddha picked it up, used those 12 links, and the whole as a set, which was already there, and used it in a very different way pointed in a very different direction. And we'll think, well, if the Vedic hymn had had 11 links, would there be certain distinctions, or would the Buddha have picked up a, a set with 11 links? Sometimes he talks about dependent origination with 10 links. You know, it's, it's uh, other times he adds, adds ones, they overlap. So the whole sort of project of getting, and I'll say more about this um, tomorrow, the whole project of getting to... Um, picky about uh, fine distinctions and trying to carve out this kind of clarity, um, sometimes it's helpful, sometimes it's, it's actually not that helpful. Why, why bother? It, it actually doesn't open what, what needs opening. So there's a little caution there. But for what I want to get at tonight, it actually does not help that much. Probably the part two of this talk, uh, I want to go into um, actually explain more more in detail um, very important practical 
reason or reason for practice and for insight why differentiating, for example, between craving and clinging um, is actually not that helpful sometimes, in fact, doesn't actually make sense the deeper we go into practice. But for now, actually, let's let's respect that distinction that's um, there with those different words. And um, very briefly, kind of go through some examples um, using the map of the uh, links of dependent origination. I'm hoping you're familiar with this already. I'm going to go through very briefly. Um, uh, as a way of kind of uh, looking at the the anatomy of, of that whole process of clinging, craving, desire, and the way it leads to suffering. So we could use, we could pick any example, really, uh, all kinds of things. What happens when we uh, see a you know chocolate cake? Uh, looks very enticing, and the whole process that that happens there uh, could happen inside us. So we could take that as an example. Or let's take um, uh, craving for a cigarette for someone who's addicted to, to smoking. So um, there is, uh, if we start, there is, there is uh, a, a delusion, avidya in the Pali, uh, uh, delusional ignorance. Really, in this case, one aspect of that ignorance is not really getting it, not really understanding this is bad for me. This is not healthy. This will this will cause um, suffering in in the future um, to my health and you know, to um, friends who have family members uh, really really seriously ill with emphysema after years of smoking. So something much earlier on, it, it knows this is bad for us, doesn't really get it. The, the avidya is too thick there, too entrenched. And so not really understanding. And there's sankara, the second link, this kind of habit formations, if you like, or tendencies. So the, the, all the, the, the habit of moving uh, to, to, to reach for the cigarette pack, to, to light up, um, the, the, the whole... Uh, if you like, momentum uh, that gets wired into the nervous system, into the mind, into the body, um, that habit of, of doing that, those habits involved in that, maybe a habit when we feel a little bit uneasy, um, that, that's the impulse to reach for the cigarettes, a little socially anxious, or just after dinner to relax, or whatever it is. Um, but these habits are part of the sankharas. And then we might uh, take an example, you know, uh, if you're addicted in, to cigarettes in this example, and maybe you're out um, somewhere and you see uh, how the um, mind and senses, the mind and the consciousness and, and the sense doors become, if you like, um, honed or, or primed or cocked a little bit to notice, uh, for instance, other people smoking. Maybe we're walking down a um, city street or sitting outside in a cafe at night and we see other people smoking and the craving arises so easily, the craving, just this little um, impulse, this little sort of contraction, I want. Maybe it barely has a, a thought at first, um, but there's a, a, a movement, a kind of grasping movement of the being, this craving. 
And then that can intensify into what we might call clinging, upadana, uh, um, so that uh, it, 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 this, this craving, this desire for a cigarette becomes actually comes more to dominance in the mind. And, and maybe the mind starts thinking, I really need one. Uh, I really need a cigarette right now. I could really use a cigarette. Or it would be really nice. Whatever it is. So thinking starts to get involved and it starts to become more dominant and more um, tenacious. The grasping is more tenacious. And, and then there's uh, this intensifies even more to what could be called becoming. Sometimes it's translated as becoming. So maybe we, we do start playing with the cigarette packet, maybe even take a cigarette out, roll it in our fingers, um, maybe even uh, stick it unlit in, in the mouth and just sort of hang it there. Um, that's okay, right, because I haven't lit it yet. And maybe we say to ourselves, ah, just one, uh, you know, I know I was going to quit, maybe I can quit tomorrow or whatever. And the mind starts justifying something uh, to itself justifying this whole mechanism of desire in its uh, wily ways. And eventually this um, gathers enough force and momentum and dominance that uh, we do light up, light that cigarette, uh, take a long inhale, and then there's relief with that. Relief of all this tension that was building up, um, both through the physical addiction in this case, but also the tension of what was involved in the mind there. They're lighting up and enjoying that cigarette, um, and in a way, we've been we that process. We could say we've taken birth, physical birth, as the smoker self. Uh, the smoker is born at that point, but unfortunately, the that relieved uh, smoker self is is a very fragile, a sort of brittle uh, self, and very soon something flips. And um, maybe a little while after the cigarette, we start to feel, oh, I, 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 I failed. I failed in my resolve. Um, maybe the self you is it becomes, I'm weak. I can't do it. I can't. I, I don't have the willpower. Um, I'm bad in some ways. So there's um, this relieved self, the, uh, the smoker self that was enjoying the cigarette that was born. It actually. Uh, it dies, it fractures, it collapses, and it's actually replaced with a suffering self, if you like, you could say that. Um, so death, and those words, uh, despair, lamentation, sorrow, etc., uh, strong words, but this, the suffering comes out of that. In this case, it's just, just the view of, oh, I just can't do it, I failed again, I'm weak. And the suffering with that. But out of that suffering doesn't stop there, out of that suffering, because then those self-views um, are, are reinforced. The, the belief that I can't, and actually through that, the will, if you like, the willpower to, to quit smoking is, is strengthened. Something rolls on, samsara rolling on, flowing on. Um, and, of course, the habits, the sankharas, the, the, the movement, uh, the programming and of the tendencies of, of mind and body, in this case, to reach for cigarettes, to, to go for cigarettes when we don't uh, feel that good or, or when we do feel good or whatever, all that gets reinforced through this whole process. So, if you like, so to speak, one time through the cycle just, just 
gives the whole wheel momentum there. So it's very briefly sketching sketching uh, this uh, these processes out. We could take another example, uh, maybe a more complicated example. Um, perhaps, perhaps I've been out with some friends um, for a night out, and um, and uh, we were in a bar or something, and and uh, and I uh, there's a, a I don't know a group of women there and. Um, with my male friends or whatever, and um, I, a few of us go over to chat to these women, and um, I'm chatting to one who I find attractive, and I, in the course of this brief chat, uh, and she seems maybe a little coy or whatever, but I give her my number. I give her a card with my phone number on. But, uh, wrapped up in all that, in my impulse, are uh, is is the... Um, well, lots of different kinds of avijja, delusion, ignorance. Um, so it's not a simple thing, avijja. But let's say um, I have a pattern of um, believing that if um, a woman shows interest in me, then it proves my okayness, it proves my lovability. So there's some there's some belief that something here will prove something about the self. There's all kinds of delusion. Maybe that's my particular pattern. So there's an aspect of the delusion that has to do with my belief in, in what would prove my lovability. And even in that, you can see that's got all kinds of components involved in that delusion. Now, with that avijja, with that particular um, ball of avijja there, um, I also, unfortunately, um, uh, have have a, a tendency to view myself, of course, as as perhaps not okay, or um, as maybe not attractive, and with that also a tendency to try to prove my attractiveness, my okayness, to others and to myself. So there's there's this belief maybe that I'm not okay. There's a belief in what would prove it and there's the tendency to view myself that way and to try to prove it. I keep trying in the world how much of my actions and choices and speech and dress and everything is trying to prove something. Already there's, there's dukkha there, there's pain, you can see. And all this, um, I've given her my number and uh, and I've gone away, you know, and, and um, but it's loaded. <clears throat> the whole thing has loaded my consciousness because of the avijja, because of these sankaras. Loaded my consciousness. It's primed my consciousness, my mind, and my senses. So the next day, the next few days, <clears throat> I'm at work, and I can see how the how the consciousness um, perhaps narrows around this. Is she going to call? Um, and and maybe it builds, you know, and the body keeps checking the mobile phone. Any messages? Any messages? Any messages? And maybe it starts building. I can't. It's actually impinging on my ability to concentrate on other stuff like my work. There's craving. There. There's craving. The craving already is complex. I'm craving a certain sound or message notification from my phone, but that's wrapped up. You know, a lot of stuff is wrapped up in that. I'm craving to check, um, to be able to check my phone. So there's, there's craving there, all, all kinds of uh, levels of craving. 
Maybe I even get irritated in those stretches of time when I'm not, when I can't. Perhaps I have to go for a meeting with um, the boss, and I have to look really sharp and present something or whatever, and uh, or or listen to what he she says, and uh, very carefully. And I'm a little bit irritated because at that at that point I can't check my messages. So this whole thing is building, and perhaps uh, there's a, uh, increasing frequency to how I'm checking um, the messages and uh, obsessive thinking ab- about it. And I can notice in all this um, how how the mood and the self view get um, are, are really. Um, Buffeted around with with what with uh, waves of excitement, anticipation, hope, anxiety, despondency. It's just going up and down. There, someone's ringing me now. I don't recognise the number. Oh, maybe this is her. And I pick it up, and it's uh, someone trying to sell me health insurance or something. So there was that swelling up, anticipation, excitement, the, the becoming, and then and then and then the crash. Or again, it rings, and and again, it's it's a it's a um, a number I don't recognise or something. I pick it up; it's just someone with the wrong number. Um, and the same thing: this this rise and fall of of the becoming of the self. And then maybe a few days goes by, you know, in a week or I don't know how long, and she she doesn't call. Um, or, but in in that week, I'm becoming increasingly despondent. She won't call, and that's reinforcing something. I am unattractive. It's true. Um, and let's say she doesn't call, and then that self view gets solidified. It it now I have evidence there. And usually, this is not so clear as a thinking process. It's kind of jam together like 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 spaghetti that has kind of melted into each other it's not so okay she didn't call therefore i'm attracted some some therefore i'm unattractive something's happening in the whole mind it's getting compressed and mixed up and confused and oppressed but basically she didn't call and the self view of being somehow not okay somehow unattractive is, has been solidified through this whole process and then a little more time goes by, a week or a couple of weeks or whatever, and that whole painful self-view that has become so jammed and dense and heavy and painful, um, that actually just over time, being involved in other stuff, etc., having other um, things demand my attention, preoccupations, etc., distractions, whatever, um, it gets a little uh, less solid, a little more broken up, a little less intense. There is the breakup or the, the the death, if you like, of of that self view to a certain extent. In this case, it's a negative self view that's that's dying. But still, uh, so there's some relief. But still, the uh, what the Buddha called the asavas, the outflows, the effluent. Actually, it's related to the word for sewage, and um, the, the 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 effluent. The outflows um, from all that. Uh, if I don't question all this business about self-view and how I'm trying to prove something to myself and to the world, if I don't que- question all that, the avidya, the ignorance, and the sankharas, the tendencies, 
um, to try and prove, to believe certain things. If without questioning, then through that, that process, that whole cycle goes through its whole painful um, contractions and, and life and death and dis- dissolution and relative disappearance or abeyance for a time. But without the questioning, um, uh, without um, the questioning of my belief that I need to somehow there's one way to address this sense of unattractiveness or not okayness and that's by proving it without questioning all that I'm just reinforcing the whole pattern gets reinforced so it rose up, it got solid, it dissolved over time, but, but because there was no questioning, um, the whole thing just got reinforced. It's just, it's, um, the seeds have gotten bigger. So the next time it comes back, it's, it's just, it's just um, perhaps even a little bit stronger. And this will happen until, the, until something other, until I have another way of relating, understanding, prying loose this whole process. Pain, pain, craving and clinging, and all that process, um, bringing, bringing suffering, bringing dukkha. Now, sometimes, uh, what we crave is actually what the Buddha called is uh, vibhavatanha, a craving for kind of non-being, um, for kind of like extinction. So, um, sometimes we have that just. When we want to go to bed at night, so there's a craving. I just want to turn everything off. I've had enough of the day, you know. Um, but sometimes, in really strong instances, for instance, someone getting um, wanting to just get completely plastered drunk, um, there's something uh, seeking a kind of oblivion and a kind of um, dissolution of the self in in that uh, in that wish. There, we seek um, obliteration, oblivion, a kind of extinction. Vibhavatanha. Sometimes what's happening is uh, in the object that we seem to be craving, maybe it's the chocolate cake or whatever, um, that there's actually a painful emotion underneath. Maybe we feel lonely, maybe uh, we feel unloved. And it's painful to be with that. And something in, in the chocolate cake and in that whole putting it in the mouth and chewing in this very primal way. Um, there is pleasure involved in that, absolutely. But at another level of the craving, we're seeking to obliterate or cover over or um, numb out the painful emotion un- un- underlying it. It's quite common with, um, well, in relation to food. Um so it's it's complex all this there's different f- forces operating if you like different intentions operating or also what happens and this is interesting too is um that if we pay attention to this actually craving itself um is uncomfortable there's a kind of pressure that builds with craving I, I, I want that thing, like with the cigarette example, for, for uh, or, or it could be chocolate cake, whatever it is. And and that craving itself is dukkha. It, it feels uncomfortable. So that what, we're, what we end up actually wanting, by the time we have access to the cigarette or, or, the, um, or the 
cake or what, whatever it is, is actually is it's as much the pleasure of the cake as it is the relief of the pressure, the bursting of that uncomfortable bubble uh, of, of pressure of the craving. So that we're seeking a kind of obliteration of the pressure, uh, the uncomfortable pressure of the craving. So all this is um, can be in, involved in what's going on for us with um, with craving and clinging and that whole process. As I said, now we we could have I'm going through this very very uh, quickly. Uh, we could have gone through it much slowly. Uh, certainly, a whole talk on on one example like this and kind of. Um, T- taking apart the pieces and mapping it onto those 12 links. Um, if you do want more detail with more distinctions, um, th- th- this kind of stuff is, is not hard to find these days. I mean, um, one place is uh, in, um, in the book that I wrote, Seeing That Freeze, in chapter 10, I think, is devoted to going into this in quite a lot of detail. Um, or uh, Paiuto, a Thai monk, wrote a book called Dependent Origination. You can you can find it. It's not hard to find. It's also not difficult to understand. Um, it's just, uh, as I said, a kind of anatomy. Several times with different groups over the years I've done um, uh, teaching sessions where we sort of lay it out on the floor, these 12 links, and then we go through different scenarios um, of uh, how, you know, how suffering gets... Uh, built up and tied together and, and contracted and difficult situations and uh, either real ones or hypothetical ones. And um, it's almost always interesting to me how much people enjoy doing that. You've got this map and you're kind of together looking at, looking at if you like, the tragedy but also the comedy of the human mind in this process of tying itself up in knots, etc. But people really seem to um, enjoy, uh, interesting, this kind of dissecting of, of the anatomy or physiology or the process um, of, of suffering in this way, of clinging and suffering in this way. And partly it's because uh, something in the human mind seems to like chopping things up and mapping them out and feeling like, oh, there's this word that the Buddha used and there's this in my experience and I can kind of map them together. And we seem, it seems to us, that we we recognize something of, of a truth here. And so we have the feeling, I've understood something. Um, I recognize a component of the process and I understand it. So people often, we often enjoy that feeling I'm sometimes not at all convinced that that seeming recognition and seeming so-called understanding actually makes much difference. Is it really helpful? What we really need here is is practices to be able to actually pick up these concepts, if those are the concepts we're using, and really practice with them. Uh, so if we're using this idea of the 12 links of dependent origination, where exactly can I come in in that process? What are the um, points of entry, and there are various points of entry, that I can come in and actually contemplate in a different way, in the moment, or pay attention, bring my mindfulness to bear on a certain um, link or feature, whatever it is, in ways that actually make the difference, make a difference, r- relieve suffering, um, disband to a certain extent some suffering. Uh, without that, um, then we get this kind of 
really unfortunately it's a kind of illusion of understanding something because it looks like we're being clear because we've got um, something that looks concrete um, uh, mapped on to some concept that is in the teachings that the Buddha used that otherwise might have remained more abstract. So far, oh, great, I've understood something. There's this clarity of carving up <coughs> and mapping and uh, corresponding concepts. What we really need is is uh, is is practice at the on at the on the front, <laughs> so to speak, where the action is, and ways of practicing that are powerful, specific, um, helpful. So the Buddha said a lot about all this, and in different ways. And you know, um, he said. Um, we can, he pointed out, we can cling. You know, there's there's uh, lists of what we can cling to or crave. And said, for instance, to uh, sense pleasures is an obvious one. We cling to the pleasures available in the senses. Um, we cling, he said, also to our views and opinions. We cling to our customs and habits, uh, wherever they come from. They're personal or more social or cultural or religious secular, cultural, whatever. Um, and we also cling to self-views, the different views of the self, beliefs about the self. Um, so all that's there, and sometimes people do um, dissect this anatomy and, and present it as, as a teaching, or try and approach the teachings that way. And sometimes all this is there, and the Buddha's making all these distinctions, etc. And what we take as a message is this teaching, just let go of everything. Just let go of everything. And even as I say it now, you can recognize it's like, it simultaneously feels like a hugely tall order, and at the same time, it's so attractive as a teaching. It's so simple. Just let go of everything. Just let go of everything. And and we, we love something in us, love simplicity. And something in us is seduced by simplicity and simple teachings and simple solutions. Even if they're even if we acknowledge that that's very challenging. It's a very simple message. Just let go of everything. Just go with the flow. Be with the flow. Just be in the moment. Be in the present. But don't even cling to that idea. Just be in the present. Uh, very simple. And, and the attraction of what I've called simplism in, in other teachings, in other talks I've given. I'm going to say, in this just let go of everything, then liberation has nothing to do per se with an experience or any experience. So you get the instruction, don't try to repeat experiences, even if they're wonderful, insightful experiences and openings and mystical experiences and all that. Don't try to repeat, that's just clinging. Just let go of everything, let go of everything. Liberation is um, is a, a relationship of non-clinging with experience. That's what liberation is. Liberation is uh, non-clinging. So it's not an experience, it's a relationship. It's a very um, enticing 
and attractive the simplicity of that teaching. And then people are different. They may they may um, take some of uh, those divisions that the Buddha talked about and 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 take them as areas of investigation. But just basically, this, the teaching is basically let go of everything. Just let go of everything. Uh, and of course, we can be, I mean, some people are completely over simple, so um, almost not even going into any any tools of how, how we might even let go of everything. Um, but generally speaking, we offer tools, and, and tools are offered. Um, so the first one uh, would be, well, for a start, how do I notice craving? Do I do I even recognize the experience of craving? Because how can I let go if I don't if I don't recognize it? So that's an important aspect here. It's an important question. Um, how do I notice craving? How do I notice that movement of of desire or clinging, whatever we want to call it? Well, one obvious way is as my thoughts tell me. So I have to be aware of my thoughts. My thoughts tell me when they keep returning to the same object. Um, when I hear the mind say, I, I want, or even more, I need. I need that chocolate cake, or whatever it is. Um, so my thoughts tell me, in, in different ways, uh, they uh, reveal the presence of clinging by, by the way they circle around some, some object or start to obsess around something, or, or whatever. Um, but perhaps even more than that, um, we can recognize that craving itself, as I as I mentioned earlier, is already dukkha. It's not just that it leads to dukkha. So this smoking will um, will uh, you know cause suffering, etc. Um, cr- the experience of craving itself, that the the force of craving itself, is already uncomfortable. It's already a dis-ease. Uh, there is dukkha there. So this presence of dukkha, um, my, my mindfulness revealing a feeling of dukkha, just slight dis-ease, uneasiness, etc., imbalance, if you like, all that reveals, aha, there's some craving. What, what is it that I'm craving? Um, so that uh, with, you know, at a, at a much more subtle level than would be revealed in our thoughts, because craving can be quite active and quite present, um, even when there's no thought in the mind. When there's no thought, there can still be craving. So this is what I want to go into um, uh, probably in the next talk, is that is that when we use these words craving and clinging, we're really talking about a huge range of, um, from very, very gross and obvious to extremely subtle. So at some point, um, thought no longer needs to be there for the more subtle um, um, aspects of, of, or subtle manifestations of craving. But when there is craving, there is noticeable, um, as, uh, almost all the time, let's say, um, no, let's say all the time, there is, with craving, 
uh, attention that is noticeable. Um, in the body, maybe in the musculature, maybe even more subtle than that when it gets really quite subtle, in the, in the sort of felt space of what I call the energy body or the subtle body, attention, a contraction comes in. And even more subtle than that, in, in the, what we might call the mind space. Again, it's not about thoughts. It's about there's a certain cramping in, in the um, otherwise more natural spaciousness and openness of the mind. So this is what tells me uh, that craving is present. This tension, contraction, which will be felt as some degree of dis-ease in the body or mind space. That's different than deliberately narrowing the attention, like right now I can deliberately focus my attention on my tip of my index finger and the sensations right there in the middle. So I'm deliberately narrowing. but this, um, you know, that's fine. That's a that's a, a mode of mind, if you like. But um, but with craving, there's a, a tension contraction that comes into the um, body and the mind space that we can feel and that we can get increasingly um, sensitive to to noticing. But. Uh, you know, so one one teaching w- would be um, when you notice craving, um, just let go of the craving, just let go of whatever it is you're craving. Let let go of that, and um, again, sounds simple, and it might work sometimes. Sometimes this might work. It's just um, let go of wanting the chocolate cake. You know, just let go. And if I'm attached to views, so-and-so said this, but I think that's wrong. It's like, just let go of it. Um, so that's one, one, one kind, kind of instruction, is just notice it and let it go. Um, uh, let's run, few, run through a few of the sort of maybe more common um, tools, if you like, that are um, in the service of this just let go of everything sort of teaching. Um, So one is notice it and let go of whatever the object that you're craving is or whatever you're you're clinging to, um, which sometimes works and, as you will all know, sometimes does not work. Um, Second uh, would be to... um, use some skillful reflection so here's this thing maybe it's that chocolate cake that I'm um, keep keep and I notice there's this craving um, towards it whatever and just to reflect for example um, this is a common teaching on the impermanence of sense pleasures so I'm going to eat that slice of chocolate cake or three slices of chocolate cake whatever it is and then um an hour later, either I'm going to have a tummy ache if I've eaten too much, or it will just be gone. It's like, where did it go? Where, where, is, that, uh, where is that pleasure now? How much lasting fulfillment can it really give me? So this is a very common teaching. It's just um, reflect on the impermanence of sense pleasures, of what we're, what we're clinging to. And if it's um, clinging to views and opinions, it's just actually, you know, again, reflecting, well, how, how many times in the past have I changed my view? Sometimes they're diametrically opposed one. And oftentimes I have views uh, and opinions about things that I actually don't really know. 
if I'm really honest, I don't know what the truth is there. And I'm so attached to uh, my view and my opinion. And just to reflect, I don't really know. Or my view might change. Um, or to reflect, here's this um, clinging, here's maybe this obsession about something, or um, or again, you know, whatever, the chocolate cake or whatever. Is this, is this clinging, or this obsession, or this thing that my mind keeps chewing over, is this really taking me where I want to go? So I could go down this road of thinking about this, obsessing about it, worrying about it, fretting about it, etc., what will I have at the end of that? Will I have uh, what I really want? Will I have peace? Will I have fulfillment? So this is some very, uh, again, I'm going through very quickly, and we'll, we'll, um, we will uh, touch on these in the instructions, um, but you can find all this in, in plenty of other places, so I'm just kind of running through it, as I said, to set a context for um, the other material that I want to touch on. This, this is very common. Um, I and probably every every teacher, uh, every Dharma teacher has, has given these kind of teachings. But that would be the second, skillful reflection. Um, the third uh, possible uh, tool is, is to become um, acquainted with, um, through mindfulness, acquainted with what we call papancha, P-A-P-A-P-A-N-C-A, papancha, or... Um, proliferation, um, exaggeration, hype, um, storytelling um, that goes on, that the mind gets into when it gets really crazy about something. Um, so I didn't really elaborate, but for example, in, in, the, in, the, um, in the example where I gave the, um, the woman my number, and, and then the whole story building and hype around, around it, or um, maybe it's something that we want and, and um, uh, or that's really terrible if it happens. And, and there's a whole um, identity view and story and history and hyping up of the self and the, the issue involved. And um, we can see this happening. Uh, this is another thing on, on, on retreats, how, how happy people are to hear stories, funny stories of papancha. It's a relief. We realize, oh... You know, I'm not the only one to be crazy that way. Um, but just hearing these stories or just, um, you know, it's not going to cut the mustard at a very deep level. But at any rate, we, we begin to recognize, our mindfulness begins to get more familiar with these times and states of mind when the mind has just got into a complete spin. And we could say, we could say, using language a certain way, that when it's in this state of proliferation and storm building, building a storm in a teacup, we are fabricating. The mind is fabricating. And instead of being with the basic experience of something, um, here is this um, uh, contraction in my in my chest, and, and instead of just being with the sensations, I'm bringing in a whole story of my my patterns of of um, closed heartedness and that has to do with my mother and her mother and and all this stuff and um, uh, something that's at one level just some sensations 
that that will pass has become this whole heavy story that it's absolutely terrible. I must I must get rid of this. I'm etc. etc. And afterwards, when it dissolves a little bit, we we begin to see. Oh, we were fabricating something. There was this papancha state, and this whole web weaving of of uh, complication and elaboration and proliferation around self and around issue and and all of that. And th- there's fabrication. And in contrast to that, when we're just so-called simply mindful, uh, we can be there's the sensation in the chest, yeah, it's, it's contraction, it's unpleasant, and we can be with that sensation um, in, a, in what we sometimes call bare attention, uh, and, and that state of mindfulness and of so-called bare attention is a state of no papancha and no fabrication, we're just with the thing as it is. And through repeated mindfulness practice, we actually get more of a taste for this, more of a taste of living um, and without papancha, not caught up in the maelstrom in that teacup, not not entangled in the in the sort of cobwebs uh, and and the and the and the, um, uh, the, the you know the imprisonment really of all this intricate thick. And over elaborated storytelling. Um, so, a degree of clinging and craving is released when we when we let go of that papancha, and we're with things um, more in 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 the way of what we could call simple mindfulness, or we could call bare attention, um, or we could say being with things as they are, simply. Um, but so that that. Um, simple mindfulness practice in contrast to papancha um, and seeing that uh, or seeming to see that we're not fabricating when we're mindful that's a skillful tool too another one a little bit more um, <clears throat> precise if, if you like um, is so let's take a negative example. For example, the um, craving to be rid of something, what we call aversion. So um, here, I maybe I'm sitting on a retreat or something, and my back hurts or my knee knees hurt or something. And um, there's the unpleasant vedna, the unpleasant sensations, and um, there's a craving to be rid of them. There's a rejection, there's a pushing away. Again, maybe my mind is saying, oh, come on, ring the bell. When's this sitting over? And and spinning all kinds of stories about, again, I have this pain because I'm such a contracted human being and etc., etc. Other people don't have it, whatever it is. Um, uh, but maybe even without thought, as I said, there's, there's no thought, there's just um, this pain and this energetic push um, rejection of that experience, a kind of tensing of 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 the being of of the body and of the mind to 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 get rid of, to hold it at arm's length, to push it away. And and this again, we can feel, we can notice. And one skillful strategy is actually just to come to um, train the attention and just see: can I hold it? Right at that at that point in the body where the unpleasant vedna are just coming up like a fountain, moment after moment, there's that unpleasantness, an unpleasant sensation, unpleasant sensation, um, unpleasant sensation um, in my back or in my knee or whatever it is. 
And looking at, at that way and kind of, you know, intent, but, but with some relaxation as well, in a kind of balanced way, just honing, training, focusing the attention just as, as much as I can at that kind of um, fountain, if you like, of moment-to-moment unpleasant Vedana. And then I'll notice um, that the, the, the craving um, go with that. So there's the unpleasant maiden, there's this rejection. And, and they kind of go together. Um, but what I can... So there's this let's say, the arising and unpleasant, and then this kind of impulse of rejection, this energetic push away. And of course, I can, I can see this with... Um, with um, uh, pleasant sensations as well. Sometimes it's really interesting. I'm um, eating and watching this movement. Here's this delicious food that's been um, maybe again on retreat cooked for me, or cooked it for myself at home, whatever it is. And and I'm eating and I'm really paying attention to the arising of the pleasant sensations in the mouth. The food is in my mouth, and then I can still notice curiously how something in the being, um, in the mind, is kind of grasping. It's like this movement of grasping, movement towards, to hold, to grasp, to hold onto, to encompass um, those pleasant sensations. So I see the pleasantness, and I see this impulsive, energetic movement to grasp. The food is already in my mouth. Um, and the pleasantness is already there, and there's still this this grasping. Um, so I can see it either way, and I, I begin to, uh, or I, I stay steady at the Vedana, and then what happens is that, and again, this is separating notions of craving from clinging. I see the craving, the impulse arise, but but it doesn't build up so much. So I can just stay, for example, with this pain in the body, this moment-to-moment arising of Vedana, and just watch these little bursts of impulse, of craving, of rejection, of pushing away, um, arise. But they don't, they just sort of arise and they subside. They arise and they subside. And and this um, consolidation and building of that and solidification, entrenchment of that into what might be called clinging, it, it doesn't arise because I'm just staying closer to the Vedana and the craving. So that would be a fourth. Um, a fifth is, again, relating back to what I uh, touched on earlier, is to actually um, develop an ability where I'm, I'm paying uh, more attention to the actual experience of craving and noticing that pressure that is involved in craving. Um, so back to the cigarette example or the, or the chocolate cake example, whatever it is. Um, and here's that the mind has the image of the cigarette, and then there's this, I can feel this pressure build of the craving, um, or maybe it's clinging. I, I can um, feel that pressure build in, in the body, um, uh, maybe even more than the mind. And instead of um, <clears throat> seeking to obliterate and release and sort of pop that uncomfortable bubble of pressure by having the cigarette, etc. I'm actually learning, just give that some space. Just let that pressure kind of build, ebb, and, and it swells. And then I'll notice, oh, it reaches a certain point and it just subsides again. 
Um, and may- maybe it does that again. But what what's happening there is I'm staying with it and giving it space. That's key. And I'm learning to tolerate it. I'm developing my capacity to tolerate that uncomfortable pressure. Um, so that I don't just have to give in to it. And in time, what happens is instead of getting reinforced, that, that, that force of craving, instead of being reinforced because I keep giving into it, because I can't tolerate that pressure, um, I tolerate the pressure, it ebbs. Uh, ebbs? No, flows. It, it, it releases. Um, it subsides. Uh, and, and over time, the very force of the craving, when it comes back next time, is a little less, a little less. So I'm learning the skill of tolerating. I'm also eroding that particular craving and maybe the pattern of craving in general. So that would be a fifth option. And a sixth is more general, um, touching on what we what we um, touched on, uh, elaborating a little bit more what we said before, is actually just paying attention to impermanence in general. Really being aware, Anicca, everything is impermanent. Everything is impermanent. So this is so much the thrust of so much insight meditation. Just see that everything is impermanent. Just notice, you know, um, how can you not but notice? If, you, if you're mindful, you'll see that things are impermanent. And we start to notice it more and more. And if we notice that things are impermanent, um, we let go. We see there's no, there's no point. Um, chasing things that will just be impermanent. There's no point clinging to things that are going to dissolve anyway, etc. So, at least that's the theory. Um, And there's a certain amount of truth in that. Uh, When we see impermanence, we let go. So, the noticing of impermanence, the attention to impermanence, generally speaking, brings letting go. And maybe, and that would be a sixth possibility, maybe with that sixth possibility, um, we have times where we, uh, eventually through practice, there are times where we see, um, wow, there really is just this process of impermanent things. Um, there is, where is the personality here? The personality is um, a, a process that's constructed. The self is just a process of momentary phenomena, momentary factors of mind, momentary um, um, moments of perception or consciousness or impulse or etc. etc. Um, there is just this process of impermanent events or impermanent things, and I am like that. The self is like that. Everything is is that's all there is, and. Again, generally speaking, um, uh, when we see that a degree of a degree of fundamental avijja, fundamental delusion about uh, reality, if you like, is is um, cut away, and there is generally speaking less clinging because there's, um, if you like, a less solidified. Uh, we don't believe so much in such a solidified sense of self. And sometimes that that's what happens, and that that does work. But you can already hear. I'm not <laughs> apologize. I'm not selling this very well. Um, uh, I, I perhaps could have done a, a better job um, of, of selling it. Um, but in a way, that's my whole point. Um, that's my whole point.
So, all this, what I've said so far, uh, in, in what I've laid out um, in terms of teachings and approaches to letting go of clinging and, and desire and craving and all that, um, in these ways and these approaches, it's not that it's wrong. It's not wrong. It, it's, it's all good. Um, it's not that the understanding is wrong, per se, but it is limited. And that's my main point. It's limited in both depth and breadth. If we only respond to uh, desire uh, and only view desire, for example, with the lens, what can this really give me? Because everything's impermanent. Might as well let go. Or if we only try to live um, with mindfulness, with so-called bare attention, staying at the so-called bare experience, or staying at the Vedana even, and if we believe that mindfulness and so-called bare attention is really a state of non-papancha, non-proliferation, and really a state of complete non-fabrication, if this kind of more or less sums up my Dharma practice and what I'm trying to do and what, how I conceive of, of the Dharma, then I will have missed and I will continue to miss um, the possibility of really deep insight. There's something there, as I said at the beginning, shuts off certain doors. In this case, the doors of depth, the, the doors to, to a much more radical depth. It also, living that way, viewing that way, those ways, uh, is simply not always going to be helpful. There will be situations, there will be instances, there will be um, streams or threads in my life where it's very helpful, but there will be plenty where it just is not helpful just need some intelligence and some reflection to to expose that fact. Plenty of um, threads in my life where it's completely not helpful to live with, to approach it with bare attention, to approach the dropping of desire because what can this really give me? To believe I'm being with reality through mindfulness. All, all of that, there's a kind of, um, if I try and do that, if, if um, even with the sort of uh, feeling of breadth and all-encompassingness, or especially if I have that feeling of all-encompassingness, it, it's going to be, there's something a bit, um, I don't know, silly in it. Because as, as, as well as just simply discerning what are helpful and unhelpful desires in different situations, and very basic, we haven't even talked about that, but as well as that, so much more is possible. So much more is possible. So how do we think of the Dharma? Is, is the Dharma, is, was the Buddha just saying, let go, let go, don't cling and live peacefully. Let go and live peacefully. Is that what the Dharma is? Is that all the Dharma can be? Let go and live peacefully. Whose Buddha is that? Or is it, and this is what I want to go into in a bit more detail, is it, first of all, that um, through practice, 
through pr- picking up this idea of clinging, craving, etc., and uh, exploring it experientially with a certain, what I'm going to call practical intelligence, facility in practice. And I start to learn something about letting go of clinging through practice at deeper, what I call deeper and deeper levels. And something happens um, in that process. Um, the whole world of experience um, opens up, dissolves, opens up to a completely different, uh, different level, if you like. Um, a mystical opening, mystical openings, plural. You can see the whole world unbound. We open to the unfabricated. If we follow this thread of clinging in certain ways, or letting go of clinging, we follow that. Subtler and subtler, deeper and deeper. We begin to, to we, we can know what is unfabricated. Radical, uh, different sense of existence. And we understand the emptiness of all things. Something very, very deep, very profound here. Um, so, if we, again, going back to what we said before, if we, even, even um, contemplating impermanence more and more rapidly in the meditation, mindfulness gets very intense. It's true that sometimes we're really intensely focusing on rapid impermanence very finely, and something can happen that can kind of pop that whole experience, and suddenly the um, the walls are shattered, and um, the walls of the world are shattered, and we are opened to the unfabricated. No subject, no object, no thing, no experience in any in any kind of conventional sense. No space, no time. Not just no past and future, no present. Something utterly, utterly transcendent and different. Uh, but I'm not quite sure how that happened. I was just contemplating impermanence and then something popped. And it might be um, that a Indeed, a certain freedom comes out of that exposure to the unfabricated, that knowing of that. But I come back to the ordinary world of experience, of ordinary appearances, and perhaps it's not really clear to me what the relationship is of that world of appearances to that, of, uh, to that world of non-appearance, of the unfabricated. Somehow, I need to be contemplating this whole... Um, this whole teaching about clinging and practicing with the teachings about clinging in ways that let me understand something about the relationship between appearances and what we might call non-appearance or the unfabricated. The relationship of this world of time where it seems obvious that everything is impermanent and the world of the timeless. Not the world of permanence but not the world of impermanence. The world of timelessness. What's the relationship there? And might not a fuller freedom, a deeper freedom, a more beautiful freedom, and, and a greater sense of beauty come when I uh, really understand, through approaching the teachings about clinging, 
practically, in meditation, in certain ways, in ways that let me understand this relationship of um, appearances to non-experiences. The relationship of the, if you, call, if you like, the experience of non-appearance, the experience of the unfabricated, of the timeless, to the world of appearances, experience, conventional experiences and time. So if, I, if I'm too simplistic and I have the goal of just living without clinging, And that's what liberation is. And I'm, I'm not kind of picking up this teaching of, of clinging in, in a way that's actually going to unlock something much more profound, reveal something about existence much more profound, much more radical. Um, there's there's a, a danger there. I need to pick it up in a way that will help me do that. So it can be limited if I take the teachings um, in, in a way that, that will limit them. So limited in depth. There's also limited in breadth, and that's the second thing that I want to go into. So again, just having the idea of letting go of desire, letting go of craving, etc. Even when we differentiate wholesome and unwholesome desires, even then, um, what I would like to go into is there will be some something in that way of approaching things, something in that attempt, something in that conception of the of the Dharma and of what practice is and where it's leading, will not be uh, not allow uh, an adequate view of self, of others, of things, of the world, and and also of desire itself. in other ways, not just to do with this depth of knowing the unfabricated, depth of knowing the emptiness of things, but in other ways it will not be adequate. That's what I want to go into on this uh, on this retreat. I'll say a little bit about it in, in the part two of this talk. So there's a lim- possibility that the way we're um, thinking about these teachings about non-clinging the way that we're conceiving of it is, um, if you like, oversimplistic, and it will limit um, both the depth that we're able to open to, and that's our whole sense of existence, and also, if you like, a kind of breadth in terms of how we then view the things of this world in other ways, which I'll, I'll, I'll go into that have to do with um, beauty and sacredness. So this is what I hope to um, elaborate. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.